uh, I think you'll like it. Okay, so sorry for the three Joseph sermons. In this lesson, I want to take a slightly different approach as we wrap up this story. I want to pose to you three questions about this story. And in the process of answering those questions, uh, sort of tell you all the satisfying and uh, meaningful parts of the third act, so to speak, of this story. So the three questions that I want to ask this evening are as follows. Yeah, this guy's turned on. Three, three major questions. Why this story? What application does it have for Christians today? Why is there so much space and, and time in the scripture uh, given to this story? Secondly, when Joseph became governor of Egypt, when he became a free man, why didn't he go seek out his family? Why didn't he ever return home? And lastly, how can a good God choose as the heads of his special nation ten brothers, ten men who would so cruelly abuse their brother and deceive the rest of their family? So in this lesson, I'm going to try to answer these three questions, and in the process of doing so, I hope to finish retelling to us uh, this amazing story of divine providence. So why this story in the first place? Uh, turn in your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 45. That's where we are going to uh, be reading from in just a minute. And hold your finger there. Uh, when I talk about why this story, uh, I want to emphasize some things that we may not have um, looked at in the previous two lessons. Uh, in the first part of this story, and that is links in this providential chain. Why this story? It is an entertaining story, and it's universally known and liked, even by children, but it's not just entertaining, and nothing in this book is here just for the purpose of entertaining us. It's written by a divine mind, so... You think a divine mind can entertain you, but that's not his highest aim, right? His aim is something higher. So Abraham foretells this bondage that his people are going to enter into. And after Abraham's death, we see God's word fulfilled in, uh, in, in his descendants becoming slave to the Egyptians. But this isn't, after, this isn't until long after uh, Abraham has lived and died in Canaan, and as has his son Isaac. And up until that Egyptian caravan pulled up to his door, I imagine that Jacob thought he'd live out his, the rest of his days in Canaan too. You know, he'd never think of freely moving to Egypt of his own volition. Canaan was the land of his fathers. So how was it that the Hebrews uh, came to migrate to Egypt in the movement that would culminate in their ultimate enslavement in the narrative we'll see in Exodus? And to, and to trace it back, uh, you can answer, well, Joseph wanted to save his family. He, he brought them to him in Egypt to, so that they might not perish in the famine. And how was he able to do that, you might ask? Well, he was governor of Egypt. He was a very powerful man. And how did he get to be governor? Well, he interpreted a dream correctly. And how was he called upon to interpret that dream? Well, the Pharaoh came to all the, the magicians and, and his interpreters, and they couldn't give him an answer that satisfied him. But why was Joseph available for that dream interpretation? Well, it was because he was in prison, because the butler forgot him. Because 
if the butler had remembered him, he might not be in Egypt. He might have gone anywhere else. He might have gone home. And how was it that the baker knew about him? Well, Joseph interpreted one of his dreams. And how did that come to be? Because Joseph was set over them in prison because of the quality of his character. But why was he in prison? Well, because of the accusation of Potiphar's wife. Right, so she accused uh, Joseph of uh, sexual impropriety with her, so why didn't Potiphar just kill him? I mean, I'm from Kentucky. It's not unheard of in my neck of the woods for uh, disputes about infidelity to end in gunshots. Okay, so why wasn't there violence in this situation? Well, it's probably because Potiphar knew Joseph, and we can presume he knew his own wife. And he likely had as much faith in Joseph's denial as he did in her accusation. But how is it that Potiphar's wife was in a position to accuse him? Well, again, Joseph had risen to prominence due to the quality of his character. But I ask further, how did Joseph become a slave of the house of Potiphar? Potiphar bought him. How did that come to be? Because his brother sold him. Imagine Joseph's never sold into Egypt. What does his life look like then? I don't think he stands a very good shot of becoming governor of Egypt and bringing all the children of Abraham to him. What if the traitors came down the road 15 minutes later? Maybe Reuben has time to pull Joseph out of that pit and everybody goes home to dad. Everything, everything in this story links together on what seems to be total coincidence. The story is so entertaining because it's too good to be true. But why is it too good to be true? You see what I'm getting at here? The story is about God's providence being worked out over time to fulfill his covenant promises, to reconcile his people, first to each other and then ultimately to him in Christ. So this is a page turner, but it's a page turner that's written over the stationary of time by God. And it's one very important chapter in his magnum opus, right? So I've just sketched for you a rough outline of the links in that chain of providence in this story. But what are each one of these individual links? I mean, some of these links are awful, dreadfully wicked deeds. The brothers selling their brother into slavery. The deception of their father. And then some of them are are, are good deeds. Uh, Some of them are, are things that God allows Joseph to do, like interpret dreams miraculously. And some of them are just a result of a proper attitude uh, put into practice. So, for example, Joseph determines that even if he's going to be a slave, he's going to be the best slave possible. And it's because of this that he rises. And so, in part, Joseph cooperates with God in making these links. So when we look at the story this way, it's perfectly clear. There's a lot of time devoted to this story for good reason. It's not just a good story. It's a story that reveals to us Almost everything we need to know about God's providence. God uses his power to direct events toward his purposes, and he does so for the most part without miraculous means or uh, direct intrusion. In the story of Joseph, God touches the links on that chain, and I mean by, I mean by that directly interferes in events only twice, and that's when he gives Joseph a miraculous interpretation in the case of Pharaoh and in the case of the butler and the baker. Every other part of that chain transpired by course 
of natural events. And this worked for God's purposes just as well as if he had lifted them up and flown them to Egypt by miraculous means. Do you see how God is master over creation and everything in it, including time and history? And do we see also how God doesn't need to come down and shake us to shape the course of our lives? God doesn't have to override our free will to use us to his ends. Okay, so pretty well established why this story, right? Why didn't Joseph go back? Let's consider this second question. Because there are nine years that pass between the time that Joseph becomes governor of Egypt, you have seven years of plenty, and then two years into the period of famine, Joseph's brothers come and appear to him. He's a free man. He's the governor of Egypt. He never goes back home to seek his lost family. And when we consider the motives of a biblical character, we've got to put ourselves in their shoes and see how, deal with how we feel in their situation. After all, human nature is, is pretty much the same across time and place, despite the differences between cultures. So suppose you're a child of 17. Your brothers are some 60, 70 miles away. You go out seeking them. Uh, you have trouble finding them. And when you finally catch up to them, you're overjoyed. Because your father was worried about them. That's why he sent you. But when you get up close, when you meet them, they look at you. They're all scowling. They strip your robe from you. They push you around roughly. And they lead you to the mouth of a pit, maybe a dry cistern, and they throw you in. Now we'll see what will become of his dreams. And how did Joseph feel at the bottom of that pit? Maybe he said to himself, this has got to be a bad joke. My brothers are trying to scare me. They couldn't have possibly left me here to die. But maybe when he heard the voices overhead and saw the rope lowered, he thought, here we go, they've come to take me home. When he gets to the top of the pit, he sees strangers' faces, and not friendly strangers. And they bind him, and they load him into this convoy, and they carry him off to a foreign land, and they sell him to another human being. What are you thinking as he gets mile after mile after mile further away from everything that he knows? What do you think it felt like when it sank in for Joseph that he was a slave and that he'd probably never be a free man again? Do you imagine that that sort of abandonment and degradation and abuse might have broken that child, might have damaged him inalterably? Think of the effects this must have had on him psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. It must have been an unimaginable test of Joseph's will, character, and faith just to maintain the basic will to live. And of course, Joseph might have taken comfort in the fact that his father loved him. But after a while, he had to start to, qu to question. The question had to gnaw at him. Where's my father? Surely, I, I, I would have thought, my father would have sent men after me. Men with money to buy me back, and if failing that, swords. How do you think he felt toward his brother and his father after stewing in this year after year after year? Do you think he was tempted to hate them? Do you think he ever imagined 
what he might do to them if he ever saw them again. Yes, Joseph relied on God, and he walked with him, and he was an absolute hero of faith, but he was a human being too. He felt everything that you and I feel. And that's true of every single person we read about in Scripture, by the way. Now, I'll acknowledge that all that I just said about Joseph's emotional state is speculation, except for this one point behind me in Scripture, which I think confirms what I've been saying about Joseph's attitude toward all this. Genesis 41, verse 51. Joseph marries in Egypt, and his firstborn is brought to him, and he names him Manasseh. Let's look at that verse, 41 through 41, verse 51. In verse 50, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. In the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. This name, Manasseh, had deep meaning for Joseph. It means forgetfulness, or he has made me forget. So Joseph says that the blessing of his son, which would have never happened if he was never in Egypt, made him forget Quote, all my hardship and all my father's house. So the idea there is that every hardship he endured, every blessing that his father's house's name gave him, it all means nothing to him now in light of the blessing of this child. <laughs> There's a lesson in there about what a blessing children are. You know, that, that the cry of a defenseless newborn could melt away a past as horrific as Joseph's seems unimaginable and yet completely true to what we know about the human experience. So when people have kids, they talk about the sacrifices they made. They may even joke and complain here and there, but if you ask them sincerely, any parent worth their salt will tell you that it was worth it. All the pain, all the sacrifice, all the hours of preparation... So why didn't Joseph go back and seek his family? Well, by the end of things, God had blessed him with a new family. But deeper than that, Joseph wanted nothing to do with that old life. Joseph had struggled for years to forget. And he finally felt like, now that he had this family, maybe he could move on. Maybe he could forget the life he used to have. But... As it turns out, God has another plan, and that's often the case. Why these brothers? They come before him. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes again. You've lost everything. You've gained it all. Lost it again, and then gained it all back again. And now you're in a position of power with a family of your own. And then one day these ten foreigners are brought before you to be interviewed about buying grain. And they're brought in, and imagine the shock 
Joseph feels. He's got to be thinking, I recognize them. They recognize me. But they don't recognize him. Joseph's clothes alone probably made him unrecognizable. But for whatever reason, they don't recognize him. And you can see in the scriptures, Joseph's shock turns to anger because he was remembering again. So he decides to treat them roughly, presumably so they'll never return to Egypt again. He accuses them of being spies. They deny and they elaborate and start giving him details about their family and they mention Benjamin. And this changes the plan. Joseph has a new thought. Benjamin would have been innocent of all this. Benjamin was a boy when Joseph was sold. So Joseph further develops this plan to push the ten brothers away from himself while bringing Benjamin to himself. And he proposed originally to send one brother back to get Benjamin and then he throws them in prison for three days and then he comes back with an alternate proposal where one stays back and the rest go home. And at this point, the brothers start to confess amongst each other in their native language, which they don't know that Joseph speaks. And Reuben specifically brings up that he sinned against Joseph. Let's look at this. And Reuben answered them in verse 20, uh, chapter uh, 42 and verse 22. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. We see Joseph for the first time begin to lose control of his emotions here. And we're going to see that again. But Joseph gets a bit of information here that he didn't have before, which is that Reuben is essentially innocent in all this. So when it comes time to take a prisoner, he skips over the eldest Reuben and takes the next eldest son, Simeon. And at this point, the brothers are sold the grain. This is, uh, you know, this is all they wanted, but why is their money returned to the mouths of their sacks? Well, keep in mind, these were the men who were once so cruel, so malevolent, so bloodthirsty, that they sold Joseph's life for 15 pieces of silver. And Joseph says to himself, I'll put silver in the mouths of their bags, and we'll see if they're just as dishonest and wicked now as they were then. He knew that if they were still as wicked as they were, then he'd never see that money again. And that probably Simeon's life would mean just as little to them as Joseph's had back in the day. Uh, time passes, more time than Joseph expects. Because Jacob's reluctant to let Benjamin go. He's already lost one son. But in time, ten Canaanites come back. And they're seeking to buy grain again. And now they brought Benjamin. And I want us to read in, in chapter 43 the moment when Joseph meets his brother Benjamin as a fully grown man for the first time. Genesis chapter 43, starting in verse 29. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. 
And he entered his chamber and wept there. And he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, serve the food. Joseph's plan is almost complete. He's got the one good brother near him. Now all that's left is to get rid of the bad brothers. But Joseph's emotions are starting to complicate things. He has them dine with him, and this is part of the plan too. He wants them to have a chance to steal some of his fine things. And the brothers have probably never seen a big spread like this before. And so Joseph, Joseph orders their food be put in their bags and to return their money to them and to put Joseph's silver cup in Benjamin's bag. They take off for Canaan, but they're shortly overtaken by the stewards of Joseph. Why have you repaid evil for good? They ask. The brothers offer the life of the offending party and they say, we'll all serve you if the cup is found with us. But the steward counters, no. I'll take who I find with it and the rest of you will be blameless. The steward starts with Reuben and on down the line until he reaches Benjamin. And when the cup is found in Benjamin's bag, they all rend their clothes in sorrow. Why is that? Let's look at the end of Genesis chapter 44. Of course, their fathers intimated that losing Benjamin would kill him. And so when Joseph looks over the horizon and sees them coming, he's confused. And they have a, uh, a discussion about how they can make this right. Joseph refuses everything and says, no, Benjamin stays with me and the rest of you go home. But then Judah requests a private word. So starting in verse 24, Judah says to Joseph in private, talking about his father in verse 24, when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord, And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see this man's face unless our youngest brother goes with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces and I will never see him since. If you take this one from me also and harm happens to him, you are you will bring down my gray hairs and Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I came to your servant, my father, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Like a flash, in a moment, two things become clear to Joseph. One is that his father hadn't failed to find him 
out of a lack of love or caring. His father thought he was dead. The second thing that becomes clear to Joseph in this moment is that his brothers are not the same men who threw him into the pit. These same ones who ransomed him for 15 pieces of silver now would give their lives for each other. These cruel, malicious boys had matured into honorable men who were trying to do the right thing and who displayed real fidelity and willingness to sacrifice. And imagine the mixture of emotions that that Joseph feels. Anger at himself for resenting them and the circumstances that pulled them apart. Sorrow for the time lost, the time that they're never getting back. But joy that after all that, through all that time and circumstance, they're now both here together, finally beginning to understand each other for the first time. And awe, the providential power and wisdom of God to bring about his purposes and use fallible or fallible everyday people to fulfill those purposes. And this confluence of emotions brings about something in Joseph that is truly amazing. Chapter 45, beginning in verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood before him. He cried, make everyone go out of the room from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of the Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these past two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house and a ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me the lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks and your herds, and all that you have. It's no wonder all the house of Pharaoh heard Joseph weep that night. Because Joseph, for the first time, realized what his purpose had been. His entire life. It was not you that sent me here, he said, but God. Joseph had to get to the end of the story to see the big picture. Because he couldn't have seen it in Potiphar's house. And he couldn't have seen it in prison. And he couldn't have even seen it when things were going great, when he was governor. He could only see it 
when he was reconciled with what he had lost, his family, and look back and see clearly how God had brought them together. There are times in life when, um, when we will pass through deep, dark waters, and it seems that the waters are going to overwhelm us. I, and I can tell you from experience that there are times in your life when you're going to feel profoundly and completely alone. And there will be times when you feel like everybody's abandoned you. And there will be times, there may even be times, um, when you feel like there's no use going on. That life itself is futile. More pain than it's worth. Friends, if you find yourself in a dark place like that, wait. Wait on God. The darkest days of my life, I now look back on and say with a worshipful heart, praise God. God is good. He really knew what was best for me when I didn't have a clue. God has a great and glorious purpose for me and for you. He did for Joseph. He does for each one of us. We better never lose sight of that. We better never kid ourselves and believe that this life is just for us. God is building a big, beautiful picture, and we each get to play a part. We'll deal uh, with the answer to this question pretty quickly. We've already pretty much answered it. You see, it wasn't the ten brothers who threw their brother in the pit that God selected. It was these brothers. These brothers who were reconciled to their brother. It's the ten who were willing to bow down and indeed to be slaves to their brother that God had use of. I think they were selected to remind us that God has ultimate use for even the wickedest heart. When we get to heaven, we won't be let in because of where we've been. If we get to heaven, it's because we've been changed by God into something better than we were capable of on our own. And in heaven, we will be changed at last and be like Him completely. God has a mind for the outcome, not the beginning. If I am to be judged by what I have done and what I have been, I am hopelessly and profoundly lost. But we're judged not by the sin that we run from, but by the salvation and perfection that we run toward. Praise God for that. And as God's judgment is always true, the brothers prove themselves worthy. Few men would give their lives for anyone, much less... Uh, you know, someone who appears to be guilty of a crime, but that's what these brothers did for Benjamin. And how did they become worthy? Here we see again, providence of God. These same boys who held up their brother's bloody coat and lied to their father's face about the most horrific thing imaginable now stood ready and willing to die for each other. Do you think the weight of that lie shaped them? How many nights do you think that they laid awake because of what they had done? How many nightmares do you think they had in those long 22 years between throwing him in that pit and seeing him again? 
Is it possible that anything, even a life of slavery, seemed preferable to the unbearable weight of the guilt they bore? Is it possible that in that moment it seemed only right and fitting that they should be slaves because in that moment they recognized their own miserable, sinful state and their own helplessness? Do you see Jesus in this story yet? Do you see how God can use even the most unfortunate circumstances to change hearts and to draw them closer to him? Through a chain of providence, both Joseph and his brothers were brought low to be raised up. And it's that chain of providence, all the events of your life playing off of each other, that God intends to lead you to great glory and honor and a crown of life. Is there a sinner here today who's been brought to repentance by the shaping of God? If so, great news. There's a Redeemer. He's the same one we all played a part in selling into the hands of strangers. He suffered a worse fate than even Joseph. And yet that same Son of God stands willing to receive and accept you and forgive you now. He will do so completely without hesitation or regret. God has found out your iniquity. He's found out mine too. He knows it all already. You don't need to say a word to him. You don't need to explain. He knows. He understands. Praise be to him that he wants us and that we can be reconciled to him, our creator and our father, in the blood of the Son. You can be forgiven. Come despite your guilt. Come despite your fear. Take a simple, single step toward him and he will wrap his arms around you. Come as we stand and sing.